You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Thank you for being here today. We're excited. This is, I know it's the high feast of Super Bowl, okay? But for us, what's more exciting is Thrive Kids has begun again. Woohoo! And it's great. We've had uh, a number of our college students who are volunteering, uh, and I think they're going to be great role models uh, for the children involved, and we're going to keep ramping it up over the next few weeks, so that's kind of exciting. Um, but it's always good to see kind of, I know, well, they are, our college students are young, much younger than me. I'm like, you're one-third my age, you know that? Yeah, it's kind of scary. I wish. Add another decade, uh, you know. Yeah, anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't even feel 50. I feel more like 35. As far as maturity goes, I'm probably even younger than that. You know, I'm just a kid with wrinkles. But... Um, <laughs> It's great to have Thrive Kids start. It's good to have you both online and here in person uh, to worship our God. And thanks to the band this morning for preparing us well. And the songs were just so appropriate for our text today. We're in the last of this series on Stand. We're in chapter 3 of Daniel. We've been taking them a bit out of order. And one of the reasons is that this one would be the last. It's basically how to stand firm in the fire. Daniel chapter 3, where we have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and um, all that that entails. Now, next week, our series is going to start with Fathom. And that is a series from the book of Ephesians. And it comes from the text in Ephesians 3 where we are to grasp or fathom the height and depth and breadth and width of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And so what's great is after studying that text and looking at the book of Ephesians, it's like the first chapter is fathom God's choice that he has made for us. Um, fathom uh, the second chapter of God's grace. Chapter 3, the love of God. I mean, it's going to be great. And I know next Sunday is... You better know, Dave, right? It's Valentine's, yeah. I hope I'm not reminding you of this. You do work at Publix, though, so basically they've been promoting Valentine's for the last month, probably, right? So you should see it every time you walk into that grocery store. It is Valentine's Day, but I think it's going to be great because God choosing you in Ephesians chapter 1, in love, it says he made that choice. And so it, it'll tie together. You know, ever so slightly, I know. It's not going to be the Cupid kind of love. It's going to be the love of God, which is, um, I think, even more depth to it than that. So I'm excited about that. But today, we're starting uh, or finishing this series with probably a summation text from Daniel chapter 3. We're going to start reading at verse 14. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, wait a minute. I should start. I I missed a paragraph. Yes. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image of what that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the fiery furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and the other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the fire furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they were not hurt, and their appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So from this today, we're going to learn these three things. What I call the pressure of pluralism. Secondly, the precision of faith, and thirdly, the promise of suffering. The pressure of pluralism. Now, this already appears in verse 1 of the text, uh, where King Nebuchadnezzar, it says, made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet, and breadth 6 cubits, about 18 feet. No, 9. Wait, 6 cubits. Yeah, 9. I've got to do my math right. So it's 9 feet wide and 90 feet tall. Okay? He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, what this... Um, image represents, we're not sure because it's not described. It doesn't tell us if it's one of the gods of Babylon or if it's an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. By the way, he is that egotistical it could have been. Okay. Um, he, in fact, in chapter 2 th and, and in chapter 4, we get the idea that he thinks he's one of the gods. So it could have been him, but I think from that first verse that we read previously, verse 14, we get kind of a hint at what Nebuchadnezzar sees this image all mean. He said to them in Daniel 3:14, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Okay. It seems that this 90-foot statue for Nebuchadnezzar represents the entirety of the whole theology and practice and belief system of Babylon. Babylon was a pluralistic city. Similar to any of our large cities in the United States, many different groups with their own religions were worshiping there because he had gathered the nations there. He had um, conquered and exiled people. And what Nebuchadnezzar is asking, not asking, commanding in this chapter is not simply, um, he's not saying, don't worship your gods. He's not saying, you can only worship my gods. He's saying, um, you got to add in my gods. You got to add in my belief. You can worship anything. You Do whatever you want in private. That's fine. But in public, you got to bow down and worship my gods and the image that I set up. You can believe and practice whatever you want. 
So two things are really happening here. And I don't know if you realize this, the pressure that we have in a pluralistic society. Um, but the first is that um, there's always a pressure to privatize your faith. Okay? You can do whatever you want on your own. Believe whatever you want. It's all good. Just don't bring it out. Don't tell everybody else what you have to believe. You can do your own thing, but you better look like everyone else when you're out in public. Just fit in. So um, the great pluralistic societies that have been through history, Babylon, Rome, and now the American culture that we live in, pressure you to fit in and to just believe what you want to believe wherever you happen, but just don't tell anybody else that that's what you have to believe. And especially don't cut down and shut down and make your faith an exclusive faith in any form. In Babylon, you can add, see, you could believe your gods are real, just also believe ours are. Don't start talking to me about yours is the only true God. That's the one thing you cannot do in a pluralistic society. And in ours, it's more like, yeah, okay, believe in God generically, believe in God this way, believe in God that way, that's fine. In private, be about that. But in public, you know, fit in. So here's an example of that in the business world, because I think um, you might be wondering how this affects you. Um, it's kind of like a don't ask, don't tell policy. Have you ever noticed that? You know, I, don't tell me about your faith and don't ask me about my faith and we're all good. But in the business world, it's like, yeah, you can have whatever you want to believe, but here in the business world, this is how we run in this corporation. And by the way, um, there is pressure. I know a lot of you have faced pressure at different times, whether you own your own business and um, you see your competition and how they're not playing by the rules sort of, and kind of fudging on ethics, but you want to stand strong, but that might cut down your bottom line. Or if you're in a larger corporation, you just have to be an employee there, and you see everyone else on the sales force kind of pushing the envelope to what is ethical, what is how they're kind of not telling the whole truth about the products that they're selling, that they're overselling, that they're um, playing games, that they might be kind of doing things under the table, but boy, their bottom line sales are great, and that's the important thing in business is the bottom line. And you're in that position of what do you do? Do you understand what I'm talking about here? There's the pressure towards pluralism, and if you don't feel that pressure, maybe you've given into it at business. Maybe you've given into it in the public, wherever you happen to be. It's ironic because uh, what we call that when you're kind of acting one way to play the game over here, but you believe one thing over here, do you know what we call that? Hypocrisy, right? And do you know what is the one, number one thing people outside of Christianity look at the church and complain about? Hypocrisy. And my question is, which one do you want? Do you want us to live with integrity so that our public and private life fit together? and have some coherence, which is being unhypocritical about what we believe, that the beliefs do matter in real society? Or do you want us to be hypocrites? Which one do you want, right? Which one do you want? That's one of the questions about that. Um, sadly, 
can you really tell the difference between Christians in our society today and uh, those who do not follow the faith on matters of morality, ethics, um, you know, how we treat and respect each other? Do you understand? We should be distinctive. And yet, sadly, if you look statistically at you know, rates of whatever, you can name it, across the board, we're so not much different than the rest of our society today. We fall into the same types of ruthlessness, the same types of selfishness, the same types of ethical lapses. So first, there's this pressure to privatize and to separate. And um, what, what pluralistic societies don't tell you is it doesn't really work. Because if you do believe that uh, you have a, a, a true faith in whatever religion it is, it's going to impact the rest. Okay? But the second problem might be even a bit more sinister. And that is there is pressure from a pluralistic society to divinize or deify something. Okay? to make something divine. Here, it's Nebuchadnezzar himself, probably, the way that he responds. Are you not going to worship my gods? You think your god can, wor- uh, to, uh, can, can your god actually deliver from my hand? Do you see how egotistical and almost deified that Nebuchadnezzar himself is? Um, that happens across the board. And it's all human organizations. It's not simply just governments, though governments often become deified in our world. There's a tendency for governments, corporations, even nonprofit organizations, even churches at times, to almost divinize or deify themselves. Now, Jim Jones, some of you remember that. I know the younger crowd probably has no idea who Jim Jones was. Okay, uh, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Okay, look it up. He was probably an extreme example of how someone had, in the name of God, been himself almost divinized and deified so that he could get his entire cult to drink the Kool-Aid and have a mass suicide in Guyana in South America, if you remember that. Okay, but... There are a lot of other tendencies, even in churches. I have seen too many uh, pastors with big personalities, which kind of scares me, um, but who have almost been deified by an, uh, uh, an, a large, um, you know, non-denom church and placed on this pedestal, and it's a little too high. And by the way, then there's rumors and stuff, but everybody suppresses them for a long time. But then you find out later on there's been an ethical lapse by this guy and everything falls apart. And that's partly because everybody started to deify ever so slightly that Christian pastor. We've got to avoid that, okay? So <laughs> we have too many nonprofits as well who start basically elevating the importance of the nonprofit above their cause. Have you ever noticed that? And all of a sudden, it, however we grow this thing, that's the good. We, and of course, have too many governments throughout the world who will almost take, well, who will take divine status and rights and obedience of their members, trying to use religion even and the God talk as a subservient thing to just bolster their rule to quell any dissent, and to unify around the ideals of that government. We've seen that 
Um, and you can name probably a dozen or two right now, as well as I think we have to look at our own society. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not the first people who were living uh, in such a situation. And the way that they handled it, though, they were not like cloistered off to the side and say, well, whatever happens over there in Babylon, that's fine. They, weren't, um, they were actually trying to be involved in Babylon. They had been educated for years in Babylon, as we learned in chapter 1 of Daniel. They had um, actually followed the advice and the word of the prophet Jeremiah to seek the prosperity of the place they had been planted. They were looking to do what was best for Babylon. But they would not privatize their faith. And they would not divinize Babylon itself. Those were the two things that they would not do. And they faced the pressure for it here in chapter 3. If you're not feeling any pressure for living in a pluralistic society that we do right now, um, maybe pinch yourself, okay, and ask, have I given into it? Am I just going with the flow? Am I just fitting in because that's the easiest thing to do? Is there an integrity between what I believe and what I say I believe here on Sunday morning, how I'm worshiping God here and the rest of my week? So that's the pressure of pluralism. Believe whatever you want in private. That's fine. But don't bring it out here to us. And just make sure you keep kind of worshiping the thing that we say is most important in our society to keep it together, rather than saying you will only worship your God. Secondly, the precision of true faith we find in this. So the three respond to Nebuchadnezzar. They respond and say in verse 16 to 18, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, they're saying, look, you can look at our whole life. We have been seeking the prosperity of Babylon. We have done a good job. We have been a part of and been involved in all these things. There is nothing that we've done that should um, defy you or just, just look at our lives. But they go on. They said, but if this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve our, your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Precise faith here. Very precise. It's amazing. Um, they do trust God, but they don't just trust him if he delivers them. They don't trust God because they think he will deliver them. They trust God no matter what he decides. Christopher Wright puts it this way. They fully expect a miracle, but they would serve God without one. They declare total faith in God's ability along with a total acceptance of God's freedom. That's a precise faith. It's something we all need to have in these situations and times. And um, sadly, I've known too many people who've kind of said, you know what, this whole faith thing, I'm out. But when you ask them why they're out, what has happened, why they have come to the conclusion that, you know what, I used to believe in God, I used to go to church, I used to be involved, but you will find that the majority of people are not... Um, 
didn't come to a philosophical, theological, ideological conclusion that the evidence that we have about God's existence, the truth of the Bible, all of a sudden was thrown out. It's not usually about that. It's usually about a personal experience. They had expectations. They had, they had prayed, maybe for years, and said, God, please give, please whatever. They had been disappointed. God didn't come through. Do you understand what I'm saying there? And I understand. I've been disappointed with God many times. <laughs> but I needed to be. I know that sounds odd, but it's like I, didn't, I have had many prayers that I've prayed since I was a child that I didn't get answered with a yes, John, exactly the way you want it. And boy, is that good that God has not answered my prayers. But many people say, I trusted God. He didn't come through for me. And what they're really saying then is God was a means to a different end. I believed in God so long as I got what I really wanted. Now do you see what's going on? I know this is pretty harsh, but it's something that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had given up on. Even though they believed God could and would save them from the fiery furnace for his glory, they also are going to believe in him no matter what. If You'll only believe in God as long as he follows your agenda, your expectations, your understanding. Then that's not the faith of the Bible. That's uh, actually using God to get something else that you happen to be worshiping. So these three men had a precise faith. They said, we're going to trust God, period, no matter what. Because, and this is, I'm going to quote Christopher Wright. He has this excellent book that you've probably seen me quote many times on the, the whole teachings from the book of Daniel. He puts it this way, that these three men are talking to Nebuchadnezzar and everyone else. He say, they said, we serve our God, not just because he is stronger than your gods, though he is, we serve our God not just because he can work miracles for us, though he can. We serve Yahweh, our God, ultimately because he is, in fact, the only God around to be served. He alone is God. He alone is Lord. He alone is worthy to be served, worshipped, and obey. You see, it's not a choice between serving our God or serving your gods. That is a choice open only to polytheists who think there are plenty of gods out there for the choosing. Just take your pick and serve somebody. No, it is merely a choice between serving or not serving the only true and living God. And we choose to serve him, whatever he chooses to do regarding us. Isn't that amazing? So here's the reality, though. God is going to rescue you. God has rescued you. Sometimes he will rescue you from death, like he did in this instance, but every time he will rescue you through death. That's his promise. In a very real sense, these men were fireproofed even before they went into the fire because they realized they were in a win-win situation. If God saves us, he saves us. If he doesn't save us through the, from the flames, he will save us through the flames. We are his no matter what. And you might say, well, I don't understand why God requires us to serve or trust him with, 
you know, why doesn't he just kind of come through more often and then I'll believe, it's a lot easier to believe in him and it's like, excuse me, wait a minute, don't you want, don't you want a friend that will trust you and be with you no matter what, whether you're fun or not fun? Don't you want a relationship with your spouse and with other people who will love you no matter what they get from you? Do you understand that? It's like if, if um, I'm in a relationship with whomever and they only want to be around me because I'm fun or exciting or I can provide for them or I pay, you know, then it's not a real friendship. And let me tell you, Lisa, my wife, many times has been around me and getting nothing out of it. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's true, right? Love is not, I only love you so long as. And what's the difference? Be and we get that understanding, and we know we need those types of relationships because we have a God who is so faithful and giving and created us in his image to have those relationships. Why do we think God is any different than that? He wants us to trust him because he is God. And he is the God of compassion and grace and promises. And that's our third point. The, uh, I think this is where the really good news comes in in this sermon, is the fact that we have a promises, um, the promises that even in suffering that God gives us. So in Nebuchadnezzar's fury, he throws these three men into the fire, as we say, and then he sees what happens, and he's astonished himself. He answers, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So what he sees are two things, that these men are no longer bound. They are absolutely free, the only ones who are truly free in this whole story. And secondly, there's a fourth. There's another in the fire with them. This is important. But first, I think we need to look at what this... Uh, fire can also represent, and throughout biblical history, how it's understood. Throughout the story of the Bible, from Genesis through the book of Revelation, fire, furnaces, in addition to the reality of what they are, also often a metaphor, a teaching tool, and I think this whole story is a teaching tool, to help us understand what suffering or trial or tribulations or struggles are. So the story was a real fire, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had promises that went beyond the temptations and trials and struggles and the suffering that they may experience. And we learned this throughout the scriptures. And I think we learned three different points, A, B, and C, that we will talk about today. And uh, that about how human suffering is seen from a biblical point of view that's much different than maybe other points of view. The f and A simply is that suffering's inevitable. Suffering happens. Job put it this way in his book, and he was a man of suffering. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Do you know, isn't that great? So he's talking about a fire, and you know how the sparks go. That's the way it works. But First Peter, in his first letter to the Christians who were facing struggles and trials, says, Beloved, don't be surprised at, and this is what he calls it, the fiery trial. 
when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And here is what's shocking to us. The Bible talks about the inevitability of suffering, that it happens to everyone. But here, our culture, America, 21st century, we think suffering is absolutely abnormal. It's terrible. It should never happen. Everyone expects to face suffering in this world, and yet here in the United States, if I'm even inconvenienced, I either did something wrong or you did something wrong or something is wrong and it should be overcome immediately. Should be simple, easy, quick, never face it. And half the devastation that we face in the midst of suffering is just our struggle with it sh when we keep saying, I shouldn't be going through this. It should not be happening. I can't. And we, and we push against it. So it's the shock of, oh my goodness, this is, it's not abnormal according to the Bible. It happens. We all face it. Nobody gets a smooth ride in life. Now, now, it's easy for me to say because my life has been fairly easy compared to others. But this is the truth in them. I'm not talking just, it is not like me trying to explain my personal experience. This is just reality, okay? Scott Peck, in his classic book called The Road Less Traveled, he begins the whole book with this, quote, Life is difficult. That is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand it and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. No, you're going like, what? Well, it's like, then you know, what you're getting out of life is your purpose, your meaning, your mission, that the God has called you. It's going to be difficult, but it's still, then you don't focus on the, you're not just looking for comfort all the time. You're not looking for the easy way out. And so many now in our society are just trying to find whatever's easiest, whatever's nice, whatever's convenient, whatever. And if it isn't, I don't want it. Well, let me tell you, Christianity is going to get less and less convenient in our society. Okay? Even now, this last year, we faced a lot of inconvenience because of COVID-19. And boy, have I whined about it, right? It's amazing, and it's like, I'm not looking. I, I, I do want to overcome this. I see where we're going, but why are we whining so much? Why not just learn and say, okay, Lord, this is what we've got right now. Let's move forward and try to figure out how we can serve others and do the best. And, and yeah, it's not as rewarding, and we can't have all the fun that we want to have, but that's okay. If the worst I have is the fact that I didn't get much of a vacation this last year, I mean, what am I? Do you, it's like I don't understand. And I complained about that. Yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not expect an easy ride in Babylon. Even though they had done a perfectly wonderful job in their government positions, when the trial comes, they're not shocked by it, and they're ready for it. So the promise of suffering, first of all, it's inevitable, but the Bible goes well beyond this to two different points. B, suffering, the Bible will say again and again, relates to your character as fire relates to gold. Okay? That those who trust and place their faith in Jesus Christ are given a promise that God will use sufferings, will use trials to actually purify and refine you. Peter says that in his own book. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, In this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's even more important than gold, your faith. And God may bring you through things, but what he's doing is he's purifying you. He's working things good for you, even in the midst of the struggles. Everything is working together for your good, even when it doesn't look like it. Fire is an intense experience. And for some, they might get burned and destroyed. But God's intent is to get rid of the dross and refine you like gold. And here are a couple questions I have to ask myself. And when I do, I might not like the answer, but I need to ask these. Do I want to really know my own heart? Do I want to, to be a more compassionate person? Do I want a profound trust in God that I can just and will put my whole weight on him? Do I want to actually gain wisdom for life? And if the answer to those is yes, guess what I need? I need to go through trials. I need difficult times. Because the Bible says you don't gain any of those things except through difficulties. Suffering relates to character as fire relates to gold. And then thirdly, this is probably the most important point of this whole message. It's really what's amazing to me is that this story... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have been a great story, and it could have stayed the way it was without this fourth person being in the midst of the flames. It could have been the fact that Nebuchadnezzar saw these three, they were not burned, and they walk out of the flames, and then the whole story is about how great Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, and how strong their faith is, and how wonderful they are, and you should be like them. But the story does not end there. What's so interesting is the fact that this third point, C, God is walking to you, with you into the furnace in your lives. That's how the Bible talks about things. The Bible is not a book about me and how I need to be. It's not about you. It's not about this character or that character. The Bible is really the story about God and how God works with us, how God is with us, how God goes with us, how God suffers with us, how God takes our place in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Bible. And that even happens in a story like this where we don't expect it to happen. God is walking to you with you in the furnace. So the prophet Isaiah says this to the exiles, to those who are going to go into Babylon. He says in Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God is with you. That's the promise. And not God in general. Here in Daniel chapter 3, we get a God who is specifically right there in the midst of the fire. 
Nebuchadnezzar cries out that this fourth man looks like a son of the gods, and that word actually is the word Elohim in this text, which is the same word used of God singularly in Genesis 1.1. In, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. It's not really as much of a plural of new, number as a plural of God's power and almightiness. So it's really God Almighty was walking right in the midst of them. And then Nebuchadnezzar says at the end, Daniel 3.28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servants. Just like we said two weeks ago when Daniel was in the lion's den, that the angel of the Lord was in the midst. We've got the same character showing up here again. And again and again throughout the Old Testament period, we have this unique, mysterious figure of how God is actually with his people in the midst of their suffering and walking with them in the fire. It is a, what some theologians call a Christophany, an appearance of the Christ before he, becomes, he comes in Bethlehem. A pre-incarnate son of God who is right there with them. They don't get burned because God is with them, because God takes their place. Ultimately, it's Jesus who faces the flames. Jonathan Edwards, he preached a sermon um, called Christ's Agony. And he speaks about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and how, you know, he was in such agony facing that, that he sweat drops of blood, according to the Gospel of Luke. And so... Um, why was it so great? Why was it so bad? And this is how he explains it. The thing that Christ's mind was full of at that time was, without doubt, the same that that which his mouth was so full of. It was the dread which was his feeble human nature had of the dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a rear view, near view of the furnace of wrath in which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. So in the garden, it's the crucifixion in a sense before the crucifixion because he gets to see what he's going to do. And you know what Jesus does there in that garden? He prays that God would spare him of this, but then he says, not my will, but thine be done. He does not trust his father simply when God gives him whatever he wants. He trusts his father even when God does not give him what he wants because he knows that God is, his father is good and he's doing the best thing for the world at that moment. This mysterious fact that Jesus himself goes into the flames of Calvary for us. And at the end of this passage, Nebuchadnezzar cries out, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way, Daniel 3.29. No other God. And he's right. Out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar, we get the most amazing thing. We get the fact that there is no one else like this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
You know, every religion has a path of salvation. Every religion, every method, every process has a way to get there. Some say, hey, just keep doing good, and perhaps at the end you'll get to the right place. Others will say, you know, if you go around, the, around and around and around, maybe a thousand different lifetimes, and you, you'll, you'll finally perfect yourself enough, and you'll reach this state where you want to get. But none of the religions that I've studied ever talk about, no, God comes and takes your place in the flesh, in person, so that you don't suffer what you should. He suffers for you. He walks with you. There's another in the fire. If you're going to base your faith on how good you are, you're going to face at some point you're not good enough. If you're going to base it on how, much, how, how, how disciplined you are, you're going to get to a point where it's just not enough. But there is no time and no place that you cannot base your trust in God into his goodness, in his grace seen in Jesus Christ. He is the only one you can place your whole weight on, your whole life on, your whole trust in. These three, it was difficult for them to face the pluralism of that day. But they didn't do it alone. Soren Kierkegaard once said, uh, the majority of people are not so afraid of holding a wrong opinion as they are of holding an opinion alone. And I think um, one thing I have to let you know is this. You're not holding this alone. You don't have to hold yourself together. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not standing up against Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful person on earth, and it's just the three of them against him. They were standing because they were made to stand because they knew who was standing with them. You have your God in Jesus standing with you in whatever fire you face. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed today. Um, thank you, Lord, for this book, for this witness of Daniel and of Shadrach, of Meshach, Abednego, of um, these stories in the midst of a very pluralistic society, Lord, and how it relates to ours. Help us, Lord, uh, to trust you, to see you in the midst of everything that's going on in our society right now to not lose heart, to not give up, and to trust you implicitly no matter what, Lord. You are standing in the fire with us, and we thank you for that. Lord, right now there are people who are facing some very difficult temptations and trials and struggles right now that are in the midst of some human suffering in our congregation, Lord. And so we want to lift them to you. For those like Helen Rowenfelt and her daughter and son-in-law who have COVID-19 and are struggling at this time, we pray for your healing and your presence. For Chris Rodriguez, who has had many medical issues, Lord, you've been with her through them all. But Lord, we just pray that you bring your healing there and that you would lead her forward to trust you even more, that you would be glorified in her life, that you would show your mercy and grace to her and to us. Lord God, um, you know the struggles that we all face and the pressures in our society right now and how difficult it is and how many people are trying to force us into conformity in ways that go against our own uh, trust in you, Lord. How they want us to just kind of don't talk about it, keep it private, and we're fine with you. 
But we are your witnesses, Lord Jesus, to your glory. Help us to stand with courage, to stand out when need to be, to stand firm, to stand strong only in your grace and strength, Lord, to stand with respect, to stand in love and mercy and compassion, to, to uh, even um, rejoice in the midst of our sufferings because you are with us in them. <laughs> Nothing we go through can compare to what you've went through for us, Lord Jesus. And that itself gives us strength. We pray, Lord God, that you would bless us in these days forward, that you would be working in us and just using this word to keep um, deepening us to be faithful witnesses in a very difficult time. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with those who are on the front lines of this pandemic now and serving in many ways from teachers and first-line workers, you know, first responders, for others who need to be in public, Lord, um, that you would protect them and draw them closer to you during those times. Lord, also give to us patience and compassion and understanding in such a way that our society grows from this, that we learn the lessons you want us to learn through the fiery ordeals that we have, that we are purified in such a way and our faith and our character is developed as you would have it. All these things we lift up to you this day, confident you hear us through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.